that can be a chicken and egg kind of dilemma in that retaining counsel will want to know if they're doing due diligence about the number of depositions that you've given, um, the number, the, your trial testimony. And, uh, if you're just starting out, uh, you, you, you may not have any. Uh, And so that, that becomes a, and how do I get it? It's like a, 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 an attorney who's trying to get trial experience. Uh, that's okay. We won't put you on a timer. It's no secret that expert witnesses are a treasure trove of information, analysis, and insights. And this is not limited to simplifying complicated concepts for the judge and the jury. In fact, experienced expert witnesses can also help unlock the mysteries of this profession for greenhorns who have the right credentials but may not have the experience of working as an expert. In the first season of On The Stand, we aim to tap into the experience of some of the best-known expert witnesses and ask them to spill the beans on what has or has not worked for them. In today's episode, we are joined by insurance claims expert, Kevin Quinley. Kevin is one of the best-known experts in the insurance claims industry and has authored more than 700 published articles, along with 10 books on claims and risk management. When it comes to being an expert witness, he has served as one in more than 140 cases nationwide, including more than 40 depositions and 12 trial testimonies in federal as well as state courts. And last, but definitely not the least, what makes him a great expert is his balanced caseload across the plaintiff and the defense bar. So if you're an insurance professional or someone else looking to learn the tricks of the trade, that is expert witnessing, make sure you listen to the whole interview and implement the tips that we are about to receive today from Kevin. Kevin, welcome to the show. Thank you, and thank you for that kind introduction. So, so let's start by hearing the origin story of Kevin Quinley. How did you get your first referral as an expert witness, and what made you stay? I never planned to be an expert witness. I did not map that out as mm-hmm. a career path. The genesis came in the early 2000s when I was a in a corporate role as a senior VP of claims with an insurance company. And because I had sort of a parallel career as a business writer, I had been writing and having published a lot of articles. And because I was speaking at conferences and seminars, this was long before Zoom, everything was done in person. Mm -hmm. I think because of my industry visibility, I started receiving unsolicited phone calls from law firms around the country interested in hiring me as an expert witness. Most of those I had to decline because I had a very demanding corporate job at the time, but a few I took on sort of a moonlighting basis, working on them on weekends and after hours. And and I, I enjoyed it, although I was you know feeling my way through as a neophyte, as an expert witness. And and that continued from the early 2000s and and for about a decade. I was highly selective about the amount of cases I could take on. It finally reached a point where, you know, my wife had been urging me. She said, you're turning away so many cases. 
would you ever consider doing this full time and leaving the corporate womb? I said, no, 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 I could never do that. I, uh, but in the fullness of time, there came a point around 2011, after 30 years in corporate roles, I took a deep breath and I said, I'm going to, I'm going to do this. I, I voluntarily left a very nice corporate job with benefits and, and uh, retirement plans and stock options, et cetera, where mommy, the corporation took care of me and took a deep breath and, and said, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to try this to see if I can do this full time. I had a couple of open cases at the time. And then within about three weeks of making this decision, which was terrifying for me, I got my first first new case, and it really kind of snowballed from there. I I I, I did outreach with law firms, and so I formed. I left a corporate role in November of 2011, and the next day I formed Quinley Risk Associates. So there was no grand design, and the rest is history. I've been doing it. This November will mark my 12th year doing it full time, wow. nothing but, and I've never looked back. It was scary at the, fir at, at the first. My wife had more faith in me than I had in myself because mm -hmm. she said, I always knew you could do it. Um, but it was uh, various aspects of my background, the writing, the speaking, um, the obviously the subject matter knowledge, and even going mm -hmm. back to my high school and college days, I was I was on the debating team. I was for there about six years between high school and college. I was extremely focused on competitive debate. Represented my college for two different years at the national championships. And although I'm I'm not in a debate role, it gave me research skills. I think yeah. analytical skills in a somewhat adversarial environment with a slightly different set of rules. All of these sort of came together, I think, and helped me help position me into the role that I've got now. So I've never looked back. I am not retired. I've never retired. Unlike a lot of experts in my role, you know, they retire from a corporate job, which is great. They got a pension. That's great. And, and they do this because it's sort of a, a extra cherry on top uh, revenue mm -hmm. stream. Uh, that's not me. I've, I've, I went straight one day in a corporate role and into this role. Wow, that's that's really a story. I mean, I like how everything you know really came together and led you um, to the world of expert witnessing, and you've done such a great job for so many years. So let me ask you, what does a typical work day look like when you're working on one or multiple active cases? And especially, what are the most rewarding and the most challenging aspects of the job? Well, the work days can vary, but there I'm going to outline an overall structure. I try to observe what I call fixed schedule productivity in terms of mm -hmm. I try to consistently start work at a certain time of day, uh, usually around 10 in the morning and knock off by 4 p.m. in the afternoon with with breaks for lunch and such um, mm -hmm. and to have a hard shutdown. Now that, you know, the best laid plans. Um, but typically it's a blend of a number of functions, Ashish. Um, Usually there's a, a good bit of, uh, of reading and analysis of case materials, um, mm -hmm. writing. There's, there's always a disclosure or a Rule 26 report that may be yeah. due. Uh, another big bucket or category is preparation for testimony, whether it's uh, deposition testimony or trial testimony. 
I put a lot of time in, mm -hmm. in, in trying to prepare for that. Uh, phone conferences with counsel on existing cases to talk about strategy, to talk about issues. Phone conferences with attorneys on prospective cases. I try to prioritize those because that's key to business development. Yeah. A lot of times, you know, you, you want to be prompt in responding. And, and I will I will scrap my best laid plans for the day mm -hmm. uh, in order to accommodate the needs of an attorney. Now I may or may not take the case. That that's another that's another yeah. uh, call. Um, another call with peers and colleagues in terms of networking. Uh, I'm I'm part of a organization of insurance experts nationwide, and I just finished up a two year term as president of that organization. Yeah. But that came with a lot of administrative overhead mm -hmm. and it was an honor to to fill that role i am i'm still on the board as the immediate past president or i'll, I'll get calls from other from other experts um referral opportunities or maybe i can refer uh cases to them business development outreach is another bucket in terms of uh, mm -hmm. reaching out to attorneys i haven't heard from for a while uh, thought leadership, you know, I, I, I write articles, I have a website, I write a blog, I, I uh, submit articles to professional organizations and trade journals. Um, I, I try to attend webinars like the one that you were a panelist on a few days ago to try to stay current, uh, both in terms of the subject matter content of my specialty, which is uh, insurance claims and the general legal category of bad faith, although I, I'm not an attorney. And, and do not opine on bad faith, but claim practices and standards. And so, um, and sometimes I have to travel. Sometimes, you know, giving testimony mm -hmm. often by Zoom, that's a technological refinement that yeah. uh, we can talk about later. Mm -hmm. um, and if the case doesn't settle, 90% plus uh, resolve either by summary judgment or, or settlement yeah. um, at some stage, many times before I have to give a deposition but uh, in the fourth quarter of this year, I've got a number of cases set for trial. So um, I'm going to be, you know, on a, on a plane traveling and conferencing, strategizing with attorneys. Mm -hmm. Then there are occasional fire drills where um, deadlines loom and on very short notice, you have to, you have to tack and zig and zag. That's one of the challenges of this job you mentioned. And that is the, the deadline uh, driven nature of it. I try to keep up with professional reading in terms of uh, in terms of uh, public trade publications that I subscribe to, or uh, list serves or LinkedIn groups. I mm -hmm. moderate uh, a extra contractual and bad faith uh, subject matter group on on LinkedIn. Uh, I don't spend a whole lot of time on LinkedIn. Um, there's a lot of good content generated by attorneys about the yeah. law practice, not so much about. The, yeah, the substantive area of law, but again, I'm not an attorney, but very, very good content on, that is highly applicable to non-attorneys, such as yeah. solopreneurs, somebody like me, a, a solo practitioner who has a, a similar knowledge work kind of job. It's in a slightly different realm. Um, so that's, mm -hmm. you know, sort of a, a grab bag overview of what a day yeah. in the life is. I try to begin at a certain time. I try to knock off at a certain time and, and to have a shutdown routine. But again, the best laid plans. Some days are longer, some days are shorter. And sometimes these days uh, blend into the weekends as well, depending upon how many projects I've got going on, what deadlines are coming on, mm 
if I get a if I get do a report mm -hmm. that needs uh, substantial revisions, uh, substantively or otherwise, formatting wise, um, you you make do. Mm -hmm. Wow, like you you're clearly packing a lot in your work day. I mean, and it's it's really amazing that you've been doing it for so long and you've come such a long way. And you know, like, and over the years, you've clearly also seen like the advent of the computer, the technology, the internet, and now artificial intelligence, and how these things have impacted the justice system. So, what has your assessment been on the impact of technology on the role that you play as an expert witness? Well, certainly, a, an obvious example would be COVID and the. Mm -hmm ubiquity of Zoom yeah. as a tool to obviate the need for a lot of travel and a lot of mm -hmm. in-person. I know there are pros and cons, but it has certainly sort of revolutionized depositions. It's rare, for example, nowadays where I, I give a deposition in person. Um, although mm -hmm. I'm I'm able to do that and and have done that, but the the default mode is uh, doing it by Zoom, and uh, I like that. I, I'm open yeah. to either one. In in fact, I even had one trial a couple of years ago in Louisiana where I testified um, by Zoom or a video rather than travel to Monroe, Louisiana. Yeah. So that that's made things more efficient in some ways. You mm -hmm. can argue about, you know, whether quality-wise there are any drawbacks. So so that's that's certainly one thing. Um this is not necessarily a, a new development, but um speech to text software, which I've been a been a early adopter on from the early 2000s. Most of my writing is near a keyboard but not necessarily through a keyboard. What I mean by that is that I open up my word program and I will, I will dictate ideas yeah. and thoughts. And I'm very comfortable I, having done this yeah. now for decades. I'm, I'm comfortable doing that. Um, even back in the 1970s, when I was a street claims adjuster, we had these large cassettes and we would mm -hmm. dictate reports to clients on, on accident cases and claims. So, um, and then, of course, you know, you, you've got to go back and edit that, which you would have to do even if you typed it out on the keyboard. But you can you can typically speak much faster than I'm not a yeah. fast typist. So, you know, if you can speak 140 words a minute, there's no way I could type 140 words a minute. Speech to text software. Um, AI, you know, with the with the emergence of uh, uh, chat GPT yeah. and um uh, generative uh, uh, artificial intelligence. Uh, we'll, you know, we'll have to see how that affects expert witnessing. The flip side is this: I I recently listened to a podcast by an attorney. Uh, he has a podcast called Ten Thousand Depositions Later." He's a Florida-based okay. attorney. He's an employment mm -hmm. attorney. I think often on the plaintiff employee side, and he was talking about how he was using it, and he would like. Put in a prompt such as, give me uh, 50 questions to ask of a corporate yeah. safety officer, yeah. or give me 30 questions to ask on topic A. And in a couple of seconds, yeah. 
uh, he or she, depending upon who the attorney is, would have an, an outline of of deposition questions. So that's on the that's on on their end, and and similarly, yeah. as, as expert witnesses could um, also use this as well. Or I I haven't done this yet, but taking the report of an opposing expert yeah. and and cutting and pasting it into um, the uh, the AI and asking them to analyze it in terms of um, uh, logical weaknesses yeah. in in the argument. Or to do that for one's own draft, yeah, uh, to help bulletproof sure. one's own yeah. report. I, again, I have not, I've not used that yet, mm -hmm. um, but I can, I can see where generative AI would not replace, but be, be augment the, the yeah. expert witnesses' ability to quality control their own written work product. And I've even heard of, I haven't figured out how to do this. You know, inputting deposition transcripts into um, generative AI and having it um, either summarize, uh, yeah. cut down on on time, or uh, analyze it for inconsistencies, logical yeah. flaws, things like that. So we're just scratching the surface on, yeah, on we AI, are. but those are some of the some of the. Uh, you know, and transcription tools for conversations yeah. like this, you know, yeah. um, those are, some are low tech and some are high tech. I still mm -hmm. use legal pads, you know, mm -hmm. I, in preparing for depositions, I will use flashcards. I mean, I did it in high school. I did it in college. I did it in grad school. And now I'll, I'll have file drawers of four by six cards where I, I try to take the, the facts about the case. I don't try to memorize yeah. dates, but there's typically... Yeah. Key, key people and terms yeah. uh, germane to each case so that before a deposition or a trial, um, mm -hmm. you know, and I will drill on those cards. So that I, I prepare for it like it is the most important exam I've ever taken. And in a way it is because you're, mm -hmm. it's an oral examination. And unlike a examination in college or defending a, a thesis in graduate school, you, you've got a hostile uh, you, these people are not rooting for you to succeed, but I try to have those as well as, you know, uh, substantive questions. Every case has, has uh, yeah. strengths and every case has weaknesses and trying to anticipate the, the weaknesses questions and mm -hmm. um, formulate and, and uh, if you will, prepare to address those as best I can. No, it's, it's pretty amazing. And I think I completely agree with you that we are just scratching the surface with AI and all the use cases that you have talked about, they will become more prevalent once the privacy concerns and the hallucination concerns are taken care of. It's already getting better and more and more specialized tools are coming into the market. So we are like clearly like interesting times lie ahead of us uh, when it comes to technology and how AI is going to impact, be it lawyering, expert witnessing. And like they've been saying in the legal domain that AI will not replace lawyers, but a lawyer using AI will replace a lawyer not using AI. So I think the same analogy can be, uh, you know, like extrapolated to experts as well, that like ex an expert witness using AI will have an advantage over the one who who's not using and you know making use of these tools
I, I agree. And, and as well as the business application, yeah. if there are certain recurring types of communication, whether it's follow up and collecting on a bill, oh, yeah. whether it's acknowledging, whether it's a cover letter with an engagement agreement, whether it's um, uh, a, a note to uh, to appreciate and thank a client for uh, thinking of you for a yeah. referral. There are a number of recurring types of um, uh, business correspondence, I would say, that are, are fairly consistent. You can always customize them and should customize them yeah. to the case, but it, it will free up the expert, just like it could oh, yeah. free up an attorney, to devote their time to higher level, more value additive yeah. activities and streamline some of the more uh, crucial but repetitive or, or more rote type of of. There's the art of expert witnessing and there's the business of expert witnessing. Yeah. And to be effective, I think you need to be proficient in both. Yeah. So again, I mean, talking about the business of expert witnessing. So like, like um, what is technology, like how has technology impacted that? Do you think it's easier today to get more referrals or it's more difficult than it was a decade ago? That is tough to address. Um, mm -hmm. having been doing it now full time for about 12 years, I wouldn't say it's easy. It's so episodic. Mm -hmm. And I see it's like an EKG strip, you know, with, with, the, <laughs> yeah. with the crests and, and valleys. Mm -hmm. And sometimes there's no, there's no telling. So I have the advantage, I guess, the blessing of, of seeing an uptick most uh, most cases I have to decline either because they're mm -hmm. really not in my swim lane. Yeah, they're not out, they're not in my core area of expertise. I think that's important to, that's to really know important. your limitations, yeah. to know where you are and are not. As tempting as it may be, sometimes to to take a case at the outer bounds, out out of periphery of your expertise. Um, in terms of if I was a new expert witness, and I've I've known. I know some who are trying to break in. It mm -hmm. can be difficult. It can be a chicken and egg kind of dilemma yeah. in that retaining counsel will want to know if they're doing due diligence about the number of depositions that you've given, um, the number, the your trial testimony, and uh, if you're just starting out, uh, you you, you won't, may not have any, uh, yeah. and so that that becomes a and how do I get it? It's like a, a, a an attorney yeah. who's trying to get trial experience. Yeah. Um, they're seven, eight, uh, nine years into being an attorney, and uh, they they've not they've not had a chance to try a case. And so the client wants to, if they're going to trial, they want to entrust it to somebody who's got some seasoning in that arena, mm -hmm. and are loath to have you you be the first one to test case. But I yeah. guess in, as in any other realm, you know, surgeons have the same thing. Do you, do, yeah. If you're the patient, you want to be operated on by the person who's doing the first first time they're doing the bypass or, or placing the stent or somebody more seasoned. So it's a it's a professional quandary. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I think it's hard, not insurmountable. One thing that helped me, Ashish, is that in my corporate role, occasionally I would I have I had given depositions as a fact witness, as like mm -hmm. a either 30B6 witness. The, the companies I worked for yeah. did not get sued much. 
But if you're in an insurance company, yeah. whether it's has merit or not, they're going to get sued. And so yeah. there were cases where there sometimes it was disputes between excess carriers and I was a primary carrier claims manager. So I, I had a half a dozen, six to eight to nine depositions. So I had some deposition experience even before I became an expert witness, albeit it was as a fact witness or 30B6 corporate representative, not in the capacity as an expert. So I had, had some frame of reference. Uh, that's mm -hmm. a long-winded answer to say. I think it's it's difficult, but not insurmountable. And if you have experience from your corporate role that you can analogize to uh, an expert, um, and you have, you know, you're you're building your record, whether it's in publications as a thought leader, yeah. in terms of a, a blog, and and developing top of mind awareness, and just having a systematic approach to approaching. Uh, law firms and attorneys that you that you knew in a prior life. Mm -hmm. um, th those are some of the components, I think, of of trying to break in. It's not easy. Yeah. Mine was not easy, but it was the glide path was facilitated because I got a running start uh, that paralleled my the twilight of my corporate career. Uh, had a lot of attorney contacts. Had had published a ton of stuff, never with the idea of parlaying that into being an expert witness, writing books with never planning on parlaying that, but it all it all kind of came together. Yeah, I think it also, you know, like helps when let's assume an attorney is looking for an expert like you and they may not have, you know, like they may not know about you. So if you have published and if there are articles and blog posts and, you know, you have like maybe networked on LinkedIn and commented there, it all comes up in searches. So the more, like, even if uh, you don't have, like one doesn't have the experience as an expert, but if they are regularly contributing to the discussion and putting content out there, I think that really works to their advantage when somebody is searching for an expert like you. So maybe thinking um, from an attorney's point of view that, okay, what kind of an attorney would look for an expert like me and what kind of searches would they run? And then if you are creating content around that, that may, be, that may really help a greenhorn expert in getting started in the business. I agree. The visibility, um, mm -hmm. although I, can, I think it can be overdone with social media, oh, yeah. <laughs> but um, uh, because you can spend a lot, you can go down a lot of rabbit holes and before you know it, a lot of your workday, but I agree, value added content. I, I'm a yeah. big believer in content marketing, which yeah. is not, you know, beating your chest. I'm great, but uh, putting out there, whether it's blogs or, or articles on LinkedIn or other mediums mm -hmm. such as YouTube, yeah. that um, that give practical knowledge yeah. uh, to, to people. And I'm a big believer. You got to give before you get. Yeah. You you got to put out there. It's it, and it can't be fluff. There there's an mm -hmm. attorney that or Jay Jay Harrington is very prominent on LinkedIn. He's an mm -hmm. he, he was a practicing attorney, but now he he coaches attorneys on business development and mm -hmm. he, like he has a discipline of of posting every day um advice to attorneys on how to yeah. build their practices and a lot of that stuff is applicable 
again, to non-legal realms. That's yeah. one reason I like him. But he's, that's it, like water on stone. And he's written books and he, he, he does articles and then he, he does uh, coaching of attorneys. That's what he does now. Uh, so I think social media could be like an intellectual drug, the intellectual crack in terms it can be a, addicting and a huge yeah. time suck. I think it's part of. Yeah. The other, not to overlook the obvious, I think that once you get a case, once you get that that first assignment, is to just do a kick-ass job on it. Oh, yeah. You know, uh, meet the deadlines, do quality work in terms of your written work product. If you are called to testify, being extremely prepared, being very easy to work with, with the law firm at a reasonable cost, and 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 hope thereby that you will get word of mouth referral that at the end of that case regardless of the outcome which the expert mm -hmm. cannot control um that's a hard thing to get around at times you, you, you control yeah. what you can you're a bit player in a larger drama mm -hmm. and, but to do such a good job for that attorney and that law firm that they will remember you and when they get a call from a colleague or from another firm yeah. saying I have a case involving X. Do you know what an expert, they they think of you with a top yeah. of mind awareness. But you can use, I think, a, a blended approach, you mm -hmm. know, thought leadership, content generation, social yeah. media presence, doing a doing a great job, direct one-on-one -on -one follow-up yeah. are all components that help generate business. But sometimes you got to plant those seeds. It's a you know, oh yeah. It, and and big big trees grow from little seeds but mm -hmm. sometimes it takes months or years it's not yeah. instant gratification you know you, yeah. you press these buttons and the cases just start coming it doesn't you dig your well before you're thirsty and the things that yeah. we've talked about are all part of planting seeds and digging that well yeah yeah like the saying no overnight success is really overnight they have put in the long years right. of hard work overnight successes yeah. sometimes take a decade to, yeah. to reach that stage exactly so and 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 all of this is very high pressure work you know like um and this is something that we keep talking about across domains like lawyers and litigation support professionals like experts they're some of the most burnt out folks that way so as an like like as an expert like some work um full-time as an expert witness, but some also have a primary profession and they're working on the side on high-pressure, high-stakes litigation. So how do you manage the pressure which comes in working in this industry? Like, what are your tips and, like, you know, like and any anecdotes where you may have had, like, a high-pressure situation that you handled? Well, you're right. I mean, you, you read, if you're on LinkedIn, you see how um, work-life balance among yeah. the legal profession and burnout, mm -hmm. uh, especially so-called big law practitioners, yeah. but not exclusive to them. And it's not exclusive to lawyers, whether they're big law, medium, or small firm. So mm -hmm. I think that is that is one key aspect of longevity and success yeah. in the role of an expert witness, recognizing and, and being able to manage the stress because it, it, is, it is very stressful it is deadline driven. It is in an adversarial context. You have extremely smart people on the other side for spending weeks or more preparing to make you look foolish, inconsistent, 
mm-hmm. um, in a negative light. Um, you, you feel pressure uh, as an expert witness. So, I, and I don't claim to have uh, the the answer or have mastered this. Mm-hmm. A couple of things that work for me. Um, number one is uh, understanding that the word no is a complete sentence. Yeah. <laughs> what I mean by what it, there used to be some Clint Eastwood movies, the Dirty Harry movies, mm-hmm. where he said, "quote A man's got to know his limitations." And you can yeah. whether it's a man or a woman, and I think that's mm-hmm. very, very key in terms of before you take on or say yes to a new engagement, as tempting as it may be from a financial maximization standpoint, you have to pause and think of the entire spectrum of other commitments that you've got, particularly other cases, how active or dormant those cases are, personal milestones or commitments that that you that you have. You got a family, you got a spouse, mm-hmm. you have kids, yes. a vacation plans, other events that you need to work around, and whether or not the trade-off is worth it. And being being willing, having the courage, even if it's a very attractive opportunity, to say no thanks. Example, yeah. a couple of years ago, I got a phone call the Wednesday before Thanksgiving, big holiday here in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And it was from an attorney in Philadelphia with a firm that does a ton of the kind of work that I do. I knew him. I liked him. I knew it could be a great source of business. He's calling me about a new assignment, Mm -hmm. and we talk about it. And, of course, one of the things I've learned to ask is, what is the deadline for the work product? Well, the deadline was uh, the Monday after Thanksgiving. So essentially, saying yes to this engagement would have meant that in lieu of spending most of that Thanksgiving holiday and weekend, Um, with my family, uh, I would have to be heads down intensely working on uh, this case. And so I, it was a no brainer to me. Mm -hmm. Uh, I thanked him profusely, but I had to politely decline it. Um, but you know, in another time of life, I've learned the hard way. One of my Mm -hmm. first engagements was in, um, uh, December and, uh, I didn't think to ask how voluminous, are the materials that the expert needs to review. This And this is before the digitization of a lot of the content. So just mm-hmm. before Christmas, I got a couple of banker's boxes delivered wow. to my house. And I, I spent my Christmas vacation, quote unquote, <laughs> using air quotes, slaving over uh, this uh, Rule 26 report. It was a federal case mm-hmm. so that I could have it ready by early January, and I vowed at that point <laughs> to try to never put myself in, in that case again. So I, I always ask, what what is the deadline for the written work product? Um, and uh, I have uh, and and saying it's like the old Nancy Reagan slogan from the drug wars: just say no. There's a nice yeah. way to say no. Yeah. Hopefully they respect that, and they will not. Uh, you know, blacklist you from future assignments. I think most of them mm-hmm. do respect that, but, yeah. but not not taking on more work where where you say yes in haste 
and you repent at leisure, although it's not leisure, you you repent and ask yourself what in the that I do that because I'm I'm experts are professional jugglers. Okay. Yeah. There are a lot of balls in the air. But if you can only juggle three balls and you accept two more balls and three more balls, now you got five or six, one of those balls is going to drop. Either oh, your sure. work product will degrade or something very important in your personal life will degrade. So that's one thing, just having a sense and not making a quick decision. And another uh, thing I will do sometimes is to say, S send me a copy of the complaint, send me some preliminary materials, give me 24 hours to take, look it over, look at the entire spectrum of my existing commitments, and I will promise to get back to you within 24 hours to, to let you know if I think I have the bandwidth to take this on, because if I cannot do a quality job, yeah. I, as agonizing as it is, I would rather say no and no thanks now than to get into the project and find out that um, I have to cut corners on quality. Yeah. I can't do a quality job. Another aspect is just to th that fixed schedule productivity where you say, these are going to be my yeah. work hours from X to Y, what, whatever it happens to be. And I'm, and I'm not going to work unless there's something really extraordinary. And that happens. I'm not going to work beyond that. I'm going to have a, a hard shutdown. And some call it an end of day ritual. You, you close the laptop. You shut down the computer, you set it aside, and you say, I'm done for the day in terms of work. I'm not working nights if I can avoid it. Again, sometimes you do. I'm not working weekends if I can avoid it. Again, sometimes you have to. There are exceptions. But having the discipline to 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 cut it off, to, to take breaks, you know, I, especially with knowledge work, I think, mm -hmm. um, yeah. intensely focused work. And that means get away from the computer. If you can go outside, walk around. If you can spend some time each day outdoors in nature, whether it's a park, whether it's a beach, whether it's by a river, if you're a body of water. Mm -hmm. um, I've got two dogs, so they, you know, I can I can walk the dog, or I take yeah. you know, take many breaks to to clear yeah. your mind and get outside. Uh, it, those are all th those are all techniques I would say in terms of trying to manage the stress and realize that that you're you're you have the autonomy to to calibrate how stressful it is and to look at the positives you know there's a saying that um uh, pressure is a privilege mm -hmm. there's a certain you, you're under stress and you have this pressure because you have subject matter knowledge mm -hmm. that is uh, needed and desired but everything every good thing in moderation and so I think it's just really important for people not to overreach and overextend yeah. in terms of their own self-delusion about how much work they can take yeah. on at one time. But it's not always easy to calibrate because it's not the first half of this year was the most intense, mm -hmm. busy time since I've been doing it full time because of just the 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 combination of deposition dates and trial dates and report deadlines to where between January and the end of May, I was mm -hmm. just working in the red needle zone. And I, I said to myself, boy, do I, mm -hmm. you know, do I really want to perpetuate this lifestyle? Is this what I want to do? I've been doing it for close to 11 years. Mm -hmm. And, you know, is this, if somebody says, you know, true wealth is discretionary time. And as an expert yeah. witness, 
if you're in demand, which is a which is a privilege, then yeah. you may not have a lot of discretionary time. You get to a season of life where you don't know how much time you got left, and you've got to ask yourself the, those bigger life questions of that limited amount of time, which I don't know how much I've left. Is this the way I want to spend it? Now, having said that, once that six month, roughly six month period ended, <laughs> the EKG kind of fell off a cliff. Uh -huh. and for about a month there, I found myself with not a whole lot billable to do. And so you, you get, yeah, but then I could focus more on thought leadership and, and yeah. doing some articles and, and uh, stepping back and taking a look at my, my practice. But the ch mm -hmm. one challenge of expert witness work is not just being able to calibrate or titrate your, your yeah. case volume. In a perfect world, you could, but it's not like once you finish a bunch of cases, okay, I'm going to take this other one off the shelf, have a number mm -hmm. of cases, but they're just dormant. They're, they're, they're on appeal. Yeah. They're awaiting trial dates. They're in some state of suspended animation from my standpoint. They're not closed. But they're not yeah. they're not active and there's no there's nothing billable that I need to do mm -hmm. at the time. And just like mm -hmm. a law firm, even if yeah. you're a solo expert witness, you're a business. You have yeah. to generate income just like a law firm. And you generate income just like a law firm by doing billable work. So I may have strayed from your question, but those are some oh, of the no. ways in terms of no, look, no, I looking think... at your health and in, investing in your health daily. Yeah. No matter how important your job as an expert witness is or profession, mm -hmm. doing a, a daily habit of investing in your health, yeah. because without that, that is the platform for everything else. Yeah. If you if you don't have your health, you don't have the mental clarity or the physical stamina to yeah. stand up to the rigors. It, it's mental and it's physical at times. Oh, yeah, it is. Yeah. Um, it, you know, you're in a seven, eight hour deposition. It it in, It's a mental and physical um, test, if you will, if you don't have that covered, uh, not only will your, your work suffer, but you know, it's, that's the platform. That's the foundation for everything. But since it's not monetizable, it's very easy to, for, it's one of those urgent, but not always important things until you, unless mm -hmm. until you have a health crisis that reminds you at that point, you may be stuck with a condition that's too too late to remediate, but daily investments in your health, in your exercise, in your fitness, in being physically active. Yeah. Uh, you know, you're in your head a lot as an expert witness. You're analyzing. You're you're up up here yeah. between between your ears. But what's important is the the rest the rest of the making sure that the rest of the body gets uh, gets exercise, gets exposure to uh, to the outdoors and to nature. I think all sorts of studies saying that that is that is key to you know, mental health that certainly came into play during COVID. No, definitely. And uh, so thank you so much, Kevin, for the, for your time today. I really had a great time and I really think this was really helpful. I mean, we keep seeing content on how to get more business, but how to manage, you know, like once you get the business, how to last for a long, long time, how to continue getting business is something that we don't see people talk about a lot. So from that perspective as well, I think anybody who listens to this conversation will really benefit. I personally had a great time. And even though I'm not an expert witness myself, I, you know, the last section where you talked about, you know, that um, managing pressure and creating a work-life balance, I think those are really key takeaways for me as well. And thank you to everyone who listened to uh, into the episode.
Uh, let me ask you one last question, Kevin. Is there a question that I didn't ask, but you would have liked me to ask? Anything that you'd like to add? I would just, I would just say, in terms of ad, the the advocacy role of an expert witness is a delicate mm -hmm. balance. If you if you find yourself accepting a case. And then you identify areas that trouble you about a case. I, I, th I think it's very important to make sure you always want to be on the winning side, if, but mm -hmm. with the side that engages you. But I think it's important. The question would be, how do, how do you reconcile the desire to win versus the aim of being objective as an expert witness? And yeah. It's, it's very easy to have those roles become mixed. And your role as an expert witness is simply to give your opinion. You're an advocate for yeah. your opinion yeah. versus being advocate for the plaintiff or the defendant and to maintain your objectivity and to be willing with retaining counsel to play devil's advocate uh, or not not to play devil's advocate, to be devil's advocate in terms of candidly, you know, by phone, not saying necessarily in an email or report, but saying having the courage, this is the person paying you, but but you can be a little more objective and, and to say mm -hmm. to them, here's some problems that I see with the case. And I can't change those. I'm an expert. I'm not a magician. I can't make mm -hmm. them go away. And and knowing when to concede, to give ground, when to yield ground when you must to maintain your credibility and on what hills to put your spear in the ground and, and battle on. So I guess it's sort of a variation of groupthink where you become you start to identify with the trial team but you're not you're not on the you're not on the trial team you're not one of the attorneys your job is to give an objective opinion now you hope that that opinion assists your the the party that hired you but it, it some some may and, and may not let the chips fall where they may but to maintain your own credibility and not succumb to groupthink I think that's a that's a key thing for experts to to be mindful of. You, you want to be accommodating mm -hmm. as an expert. They're your client, but sometimes your role as a client is to give them news that they may not want to hear. Yeah. But I think that that most attorneys, to give them credit, appreciate that. Um, or maybe they're you know they can set some context and cause you to rethink that. Or, or maybe that if they're good, they recognize that every case has weaknesses. You're not there as a cheerleader. You're not there as a, to uh, to advocate for any one side or the other. You're there to advocate for your opinion. And if it helps the the client, all the better. If it if it doesn't, well, that's not your problem. You're 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 dealing with the facts as given. Mm -hmm. So. For anybody who would like to follow up with you or get in touch with you, what's the best way to contact you? Great question. Thank you. Uh, my website is uh, uh, 
kevinquinley.com. That's my complete name, my complete name, www.kevinquinley.com. Uh, or alternately, and it'll take you to the same site, claims coach. That's claims plural coach um, dot com. Or reach me at uh, claimscoach at gmail.com. Pretty sure, uh, like you'll you'll be getting a few queries and questions um, from attorneys for sure, but also from experts who may want your guidance. Um, thank you so much for your time today, Kevin, and I really appreciate you doing this. Thank you. I, it's it's been fun. The time has flown by. I appreciate yeah. your time as well. Thank you, Ashish. Thank you. And thank you to everyone who listened in. We'll see you in the next one with another expert discussing another interesting aspect of the law practice and business of expert witness testimony. You are listening to On the Stand with Ashish Arun. Thank you.